TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Member FDIC. Terms apply. You know, there's no way to predict how people are going to see a story that one is writing and how much of it is biographical or not. In fact, it seems like the whole idea of of fiction being a way of exploring the possibilities of other people seems to be a little befuddled maybe at the moment. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with designer Chip Kidd. Okay, you don't know me, but I love you. (laughs) And with Chip Kidd's good friend, the graphic novelist Chris Ware. I really do believe people can change that. We have to believe that. If we don't believe that, then what's the point? Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor. When traveling, there's almost nothing worse than waking up in a hotel where the only thing available to eat is from a vending machine. Trust me, I know this firsthand. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC Kitchen offers European-inspired sweet and savory egg tarts, freshly sliced prosciutto, and signature croissant flown in fresh from France. This space is flexible, offering a communal area to collaborate, relax, and start my day. AC Hotels lets you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. Chris Ware is widely acknowledged to be the most gifted and beloved cartoonist of his generation by both his mother and his teenage daughter, as well as the rest of the universe. His first book, Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth, was listed as one of the 100 best books of the decade by The Times in 2009, In 2012, his opus, Building Stories, was named a top 10 book of the year by both the New York Times and Time magazine. Chris was on Design Matters back in 2012 at the urging of our mutual friend Chip Kidd. Chip Kidd is a designer, a best-selling author, and the most famous book jacket designer alive. 
As an editor and art director for Pantheon Graphic Novels, he's worked with and published some of the very best cartoonists in the world, including Chris, his dear friend of 27 years. They're both here together today to talk about Chris's new book, Rusty Brown. Gentlemen, welcome to Design Matters. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. I am delighted and thrilled and honored. Chris, I have a question for you. In this round of research, I discovered that you keep your own personal daily diary in the form of a comic. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Um, I started it in 2003. Um, when I heard that Robert Crumb actually had been doing the same thing for many years, and I thought that's a really good idea because I forget stuff very easily. So I started, I just thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And I thought, I'm not going to stop. I'll do it until the day I can't hold a pencil anymore. So that was June of 2003. And I still forget stuff. Just writing it down doesn't help at all. But um, now I think it's mostly for my daughter. It's totally unpublishable because of all the personal stuff in it, but it's it's for her now so that she can see what life was like before she was born and what her childhood was like maybe. Or... And Chip, have you ever seen it? I have seen bits of it when I'm visiting Chris or otherwise with him and he leaves the room to go do something and, tr- no. and trusts me to not look at it. And you do anyway. What? Uh... <laughs> we were okay, I will say this. I'll be I'll be perfectly honest. We were last together a couple of weeks ago when the book was launching in Oak Park and I was at Chris's house. You did not. Okay, but no, but, I'm, but this is qu- quite honest. Like what he just said, I so Chris like went to get me a drink in the kitchen and I and I <laughs> looked ploy. over. Good ploy. The old get me a drink. Do you want me a drink? Ploy. Yes, I want a drink. And I I'm very respectful. I looked, I, I looked over at it because, it, I mean, it was sitting spread open on the lounge chair. Poor choice of words. You, yes, but I did ask for it, Chris. And all I could see was giant numbers, and then the writing was so small, so small, that if I would have, like, leaned in to actually try and read it, and he came back with the drink, I mean, I know now over the years that that's verboten. So I just looked, I looked at it just You glanced. I glanced and I saw the form of it. I did not see the content. How, how is it? Chris, Chris is somewhat in. <laughs> uh oh, because trust is going to come up later as a topic, gentlemen. <laughs> uh oh. Uh oh. <clears throat> how did you first become friends? Talk about your first meeting. Did you know it was going to be love at first sight? Well, I guess, was it summer of 93? I walked into St. Mark's Comics, which sadly no longer exists, in, in Manhattan, in New York City, and just, just for my one of my daily comics runs, and I saw this... Big, daily? I mean, weekly. Weekly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Boy, that was a Freudian slip. And I saw this tabloid, blue, beautiful publication, saddle stitch publication, you know, maybe 11 by 17 or whatever the format was. And it and it had this spectacular sort of retro but also new-looking lettering on it that just said Acme Novelty Library. And I thought, what the hell is that? And I picked it up and I started to look through it. And I was just, I was just absolutely amazed, gobsmacked. Who the hell is this? And so I'm standing there in the, and 
St. Mark's is about as big as a shoebox. So I'm, I'm like, eh, and people are brushing past me. And I'm looking for the name of the person that it is, and I cannot find it. And I just thought, well, what the hell? I'm just going to buy it and take it home, which I did. And I was, I was just absolutely fascinated with it. Chris's comics look a certain way, but they read an entirely different way. And a lot of these strips didn't even have words. They seemed to be using the vernacular of 1920s, 1930s cartoons and comics to describe a dysfunctional relationship. But then there was lots of hilarious, like the like the little wantads in the back were just absolutely hysterical. But again, you know, like five point type. But but back then I could read that. Um, anyway, so I just thought I need to find out who this is. And there's a little indicia copyright stuff on on the front page as you opened it up. And then finally buried within it somewhere, it said something about F.C. Ware, Chicago. Okay, so it's 93, so it's back in the day, obviously pre-internet, pre-cell phone. And I I go to work the next day and I pick up the phone. Remember 411? Yeah. (laughs) Right? So I just thought Chicago area code 411, go. And I spent about an afternoon calling everybody whose last name was where. I just wanted to find this person. And finally, you know, uh, on the, I'd say, seventh or eighth try, this person picks up the phone and I said, you know, I'm sorry, you don't know me. Is this the the Mr. Ware that does the Acme Novelty Library? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, but please don't hang up. Chris, were you you thinking you might? (laughs) Were you nearly hanging up? Uh, no, I mean it's you know it's you're as a cartoonist you don't it's not you that's not a socialized profession necessarily <laughs> you know it's sort of like a imaginary socialization. So when um, Chip called, I remember thinking, okay, I mean people call occasionally, but not that often. Certainly back then. So, but he was very very kind and very generous, and he uh, complimented me over and over and over again, and. Uh, then I asked who he was, and he started explaining it. And I realized that, I mean, it's interesting you'd mentioned the second issue because all those strips I'd drawn in Texas uh, a couple of years before, before I moved to Chicago, and they were sort of based around the language of early animated cartoons, the cat and mouse kind of cartoons, which actually goes all the way back like 2,000 years. They found, archaeologists have found cat and mouse cartoons drawn on the backs of of uh, or etched or carved into the backs of of stones in tombs in Egypt. So, um, but um, in a, after talking to him a while, I realized that I had used as reference for those strips a, a book about the uh, character Felix the cat, which John Kanemaker had written, and Chip had actually designed it. And I'd even stolen a couple of his tricks, which I think on the back of the book somewhere there was a, he did a little sort of almost kind of hieroglyphic type. Um, freeze of little teeny tiny Felixes that I thought worked really well and it, it was kind of got at this idea of comics as a language. So um, even in that first phone call, I realized I'd been stealing from him already. So. <laughs> and so what happened after the phone call? So I, I said, okay, you don't know me, but I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I, and I can't remember if I had this in mind immediately or if I just eventually just wanted to meet him and then talk and then see. But if 
Debbie, if you remember back in the day, the Art Directors Club. Yes. You know, sort of one of the, you know, honors. And I was, God, I was still in my 20s at that point. Um, is if they a- ask you to do a presentation. And they asked me to do a presentation. And part of it was you have to design your own invitation. And, of course, you know, pressure's on because, that you know, everyone's going to see it. And it's going to get mailed out to everybody and who's anybody in the in the graphic design world. And and so I asked Chris if he would help me work on it. And so that was the first thing that we that we did. Do you still have that invitation? Oh, God, yes. I have. And I have more important. I have the original art, which is hanging in my apartment. I think that was the first thousand dollar check I ever received and I remember in the memo line of the check he wrote nude modeling <laughs> so to take it to the bank and hand it to the teller she just didn't respond at all but so and you've been friends and working together ever since kind of I mean in one kind way of well until he looked in my diary I don't know what to think <laughs> now so <laughs> I, I couldn't read it it was impossible to read there's pictures not at that point. Sure I think were. you'd started a new page or something. Oh, okay. All right. Today's episode, we're going to primarily be talking about Chris's new book, Rusty Brown, which is a remarkable, remarkable book. Chip, you were the editor of the book. I'm, I'm editor in name only. What um, does that mean? It means that... We can I, call you editor. You can call me editor, but it's it's not like I went in and edited it. In, in this capacity, and I'll just try to make this brief, I, I am an inquiring editor for graphic novels at Pantheon Books, and I sort of made that up back in 1999 when, um, I, I mean, I was friends with Chris, and I was friends with uh, a cartoonist named Dan Klaus, and I, they had both been serializing what you would become uh, Jimmy Corrigan with Chris and uh, David Boring with with Dan Klaus, and they had been serial publishing them with an outfit named Fanographics. And I happened to know <laughs> from independent conversations with both of them that they were not particularly happy at the time with that situation. And so I kind of went out on a limb and I said, well, would you consider publishing the collected Jimmy Corrigan at Pantheon? Chris, you've been working on this book for two decades, nearly two decades. And I understand you started the novel right after you finished Jimmy Corrigan, Mm -hmm. The Smartest Kid on Earth, back in 2000. And it's based on characters who had originated as parodies. That's right. Mm -hmm. Why and and how were they parodies? And, And what about these particular characters motivated you to continue their stories? Well, I'm I'm what you would call basically a bad writer, and I can't really come up with characters and that seem real to me right off the bat. I have to kind of come at them in a, at an angle or something. And almost all of my characters have started as sort of a joke, like they have to have this sort of tossed away quality, almost like they're not they're not important or something. And then after I'm drawing them for a while, I kind of get familiar with them, and then I start asking myself questions about them, like, well, what actually makes them human? And those characters were sort of a, just a parody of American commercialism and excess and acquisitiveness and materialism, et cetera. So I, th- I thought it would be more interesting to kind of throw all that aside and start over with the characters as little kids 
and kind of retell the story in a genuinely serious and hopefully empathetic way, like a real book or a real novel. So, I understand you also began thinking of the book as a revenge fantasy about one of your middle school teachers who allowed all of your fellow students to criticize mm. or say anything they wanted to about you for an entire class period. How is it possible for a teacher to do something like that? I don't know. I mean, I, but it did. And I, it, I in fact, it, I mean, it sort of stuck with me, and it was really not a pleasant experience, needless to say. I'm going to a relatively small school where you can't hide, you know, and the class is small and everybody knows you, and you can't really reinvent yourself at a small school, private school. It stuck with me for so long, I... Um, I, I kind of almost started to think, maybe I made it up. Maybe it actually didn't happen. Maybe I'm, like, justifying, like, I'm trying to, you know, create an alternative sort of origin story for myself. But when I met some friends at a high school reunion, but they confirmed to me that, yes, that did happen, and they felt incredibly horrible about it and apologized profusely, which was really nice, you Was know? there something that triggered it? Did you get caught passing a note? I, honestly, I really don't know. It was like a psychology thing. or so. I, Anyway, it's not mm. worth going into. But the main thing is that I'm actually kind of grateful that it happened because it it kind of, I was kind of forged in this, in this crucible of of ire in a way. So I don't, I don't even know if those things like being called names and stuff at, at school would have, if I had, that hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't have been acquainted with the possibility for human beings doing that, you know? To and humiliate I, each other. Yeah. And I mean, I found too that when I was in first grade, that I was I was by far the nerdiest kid, but then a new kid came into the class who was slightly nerdier than me, and I found myself like, oh, I can take advantage of this, you know? And then I thought, what am I doing? You know, it's, I mean, it's a very human thing, and you have to question and understand, and really the best way to get around those circumstances is to just try to understand and empathize with other people. So, Well, one of the interesting things about Rusty Brown is how you create origin stories that allow you to see the repetitive pattern of humiliation and abuse. Yeah. I mean, if, when you come right down to it, it's, you know, it's so minor and silly. It's really like, you know, these things stick with you. It's all relative. We all have a capacity for, you know, genuinely, you look at Charles Schultz and you know, think of like he, he was always replaying these moments of, of humiliation and, and frustration that went all the way back to his elementary school years. But really, it, fundamentally, both he and I had pretty, you know, nice upbringings and childhoods. I mean, he lost his mother in a very horrible circumstance in her illness and but, you know, you deal with it. It's not like I was involved in a genocide or saw an entire village that I lived in burned down or something. But, uh, well, um, at the same school, I had one of the best teachers I've ever had in my life. It was Jackie Byers, the English teacher. I've learned everything I needed to know about life from my English teachers, actually, just from having them make us read books. And the best teachers just make you read them and talk about what happened in them. You know, it's not any analysis of how the story's constructed or nonsense about you know, rising action and all that crap that doesn't mean anything. It's about giving you an experience of somebody else's life so that you can figure out what your own life is about or how to get through the next day even or something. So she made me read of Mice and Men in seventh grade when I hadn't done a project effectively, and that book really tore my heart out and really showed me that literature gets inside you in a way that nothing else can. So The Old Man in the Sea did that for me in seventh grade. Wow. You read that in seventh grade. I read that the in seventh great grade. DiMaggio. I, I remember reading the last few pages. Mm -hmm. I was reading it in my bedroom, and we got called for dinner, 
and I didn't want to stop reading it. So I was literally reading it and walking to the kitchen. And because I still couldn't stop reading it, I stopped in the hallway and was leaning against the wall, finishing this book because I couldn't put it down. Wow. That's how much it impacted me. Mm. I read it sitting on the floor of the uh, main library at the University of Texas, actually. I just pulled it off the shelf, thought I should probably read this, and I just sat on the floor and read the entire book sitting there, sort of a similar circumstance, so incredibly powerful books. I read it at the beach. Um, <laughs> with a <the> beer. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and and I would alternated it with um, a Super Friends comic. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just to mix it up. You've got range, boy. <laughs> Chris, you've stated that the overarching point of Rusty Brown was to capture the sense of inevitable change and shift of memory mm-hmm. as we unseeingly recall and anticipate our lives while life itself passes us by. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to concentrate on that point? Because that's what life is. I mean, there's, you know, while we're sitting here talking and you're telling the story about you reading The Old Man in the Sea, I'm imagining you as a kid walking down the hallway with a book in your hand and leaning against the wall, and I'm seeing that in my mind, however completely inaccurately. I have no idea what you look like, what your house looked like, what copy of the book you were holding, what in anything, but I'm seeing that in my mind as you're telling the story. I mean, that's this weird ability that we all have as human beings that I'm not even sure any other... I mean, I'm just simply trying to capture that feeling because we spend most of our times actually looking in rather than looking out as adults, I think, in many in different multi-layers of experience, both looking forward and looking back. And to me, it seems like comics are one of the most potentially multi-layered visual media that there are. And that they kind of work in a way that requires them to be printed inert on a page, too, that not something you touch and that suddenly springs to life or something. So here, here. Chris, you feature two characters in the book that seem a little close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, a teacher named Franklin Christensen Ware mm-hmm. and an astronaut named Chip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so how much of this book is autobiographical? No, I know that Chip has not actually gone to Mars, but how how much of the of the characters are are who the characters are in real life? Well, I mean, any any book anybody writes is 100% autobiographical, even if it's completely fiction, because it's going through your mind and through your memory and through your experience, and it's either about hopes or regrets or dreams or whatever. So, I mean, I just use the name Chip because it's Chip's my friend. <laughs> so, um, and I I decided to make one of the characters look like me and have my name because I needed a real jerk of a character, and I thought if I'm going to do this, I should I should take full responsibility. And besides. The whole idea of the book being to try to find the good in everybody, I thought it would be even more of a challenge to draw it as myself doing horrible things. I mean, there's a very strange experience drawing comics where you're looking down at somebody but are trying to feel through them at the same time. It's a little bit different than I think the experience of a novelist who goes almost completely blind when they're writing. In comics, you're always half kind of awake, both as a reader and as a writer, so you have to be responsive to the images both as you're drawing them or you're reading them as a reader. What was the good that you found in the teacher named Franklin Christensen Ware? Well, so far, none. So, But that's because I have not done his story yet. So part that's two. In, that's in the next, next part. So, At one point in the book, though, while the character Alice is in the bathroom, mm-hmm. uh, she sees the words, Mr. Ware is a stud carved into the stall wall. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. Sure. That'll be explained later. Oh, Okay. <laughs> 
Uh, so he's not. You're, so not everybody thinks he's all bad. <laughs> you had some really good. Uh, you're such a careful. You're a reader for detail. That's. Uh, that's. I'm very impressed. So. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, tell us about the character Chip because he's a very vibrant and important character in some ways. Is he? I think so. That's interesting. Well, he's an imaginary character entirely. Yes. And and I was sad because I was waiting to see him to see if he would look like Chip. Oh, that's – well, geez, you're an even more careful reader than I am a writer. So, um, yeah, he's a character in a science fiction story called The Seeing-Eyed Dogs of Mars. It's written in 1955 by the main character, Rusty Brown's father, before Rusty Brown is born. And he writes it in the wake of a uh, sort of a heartbreak uh, abandonment scenario after his first sexual experiences and kind of pours all of his heart and imagination into it, I really kind of feel like fiction, you can either divert or or empathize. And in the, his case, he got lucky and happened to do both. And the character of Chip is, is one of the um, astronauts who arrives on Mars in this imaginary story that this, this science fiction author writes and then never writes another story ever again and ends up teaching. Chris, I have one more autobiographical question. Mm-hmm. In the book, Mr. Ware starts off with a ponytail, mm-hmm. but cuts it off early on. Mm-hmm. And um, given how much Mr. Ware looks like the Chris Ware I'm sitting in front of, did you have a ponytail? I did not have a ponytail. Oh, thank God. No. I would, I, yeah. No, I have kind of like my hair just grows out and up. <laughs> um, this is a question for you both. Chris has said that there is something about the medium of comics that captures the slow erosion of consciousness more obviously and affectingly than most, if any, other visual media. And Chris, I want to know why you feel that way. And Chip, I want to know if you agree or if you don't. Well, I think it's really only possible if you're talking about a single cartoonist working on something for a long period of time, which clearly I have been doing, but more pointedly and in the popular and general consciousness, the most obvious example would be Charles Schultz mm-hmm. and his 50-year effort of what we call peanuts, but really which is his attempt to, to do something that was accessible and funny for everyone, but really ended up being sort of a strange evocation of his inner self through these little tiny characters that were uh, organically and almost unconsciously parts of his personality broken into pieces that then sort of, as Art Spiegelman said to me once, went at each other for 50 years. So, And if you look at the very earliest drawings of Charlie Brown as sort of a drafted pancake disc, almost sort of a Sumerian little ideogram, the very last Charlie Brown is completely different, sort of a shaky... It doesn't even look like the original character at all, a differently shaped head, kind of heavier, thicker limbs... But they're still the same Charlie Brown. There's still there's a through line through the whole thing, and it's still the same Charles Schultz. So they're all the same Charlies. So there's something there that captures this retreading and retelling of stories that we have in our minds that, you know, like I said earlier, like I wasn't even sure if these things that happened to me in, in school really happened. Like, did I make them up, you know? And apparently in Schultz's life, he actually did rewrite his own stories. The biographer David Michaelis figured out that in some cases that he'd gotten people or details wrong. Like we all do. It's totally understandable. That's what we do as, as people. That's what we're writing is the stories of our lives. So um, I just feel like comics as a visual medium kind of capture that very strange recycling and changing and slow 
Um, you think of Art Spiegelman's mouse, too. Like, as soon as he finished it, the first thing he wanted to do was start back at the beginning and redraw the first three chapters so they looked more in line with the last chapters. But he realized if he did that, by the time he got to the end again, he'd have to start over and do it again. So there's something weird in comics that is captured there. I think maybe the only word I would take issue with from that quote is erosion. Because it doesn't feel like erosion to me. It's it's like an evolution, which I think is a is not the same thing. An erosion is wearing away at something till it doesn't exist anymore. And actually, we when we were in San Diego at San Diego Comic Con this last summer, there were a couple of comic book art dealers, and two of them had pages of Chris from when you were like in in college, mm-hmm. probably. They're fantastic, but I mean, to me, to me, I mean, you can so see it's him. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that your style hasn't changed that much, but certainly the The soul, the soul is, it's just amazing, amazing to see. It's incredible to have that kind of evidence of a life, which you can see through art or through literature, how someone evolves and changes or erodes. And I think that... The consciousness, while it always feels like it's the same, you know, I think, oh, I'm, I'm the same person I was when I was 16 because I can hardly believe that I'm nearly 60. And I think, how did this happen? I still feel like the same person. And then when I go back and look at the journals that I wrote back then, which were really more like diaries in the worst possible way, I'm like, thank God I'm not the same person. <laughs> that <Right>. consciousness <laughs> is gone. Yeah. But um, it's still like, you know, somewhere in there, right? I think, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess so. Something is there. That's the weird part. I don't know what it is exactly. So like that, that what the thing about, like, if you keep restoring a boat, like an old, an old boat, you fix that plank and fix this. And before you know it, you've replaced everything. Is it the same boat? I was just talking to Linda Barry about this. Mm -hmm. So you you have a character (laughs) and the character exists without the maker Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and, you know, is Charlie Brown still Charlie Brown? Mm-hmm. Well, he is in everybody's mind. That's why we, she and I have been talking about this for the last couple of days, too. And, like, she's, she probably said something along the lines of, where are these characters? Exactly. I, like, I never thought of that. Like, where is, you know, Charlie Brown now? But he's inside all of us now right. because Charles Schultz kind of gave him to us, you know? And we feel like we he's part of us and we own him or something, so. Chris, you've spent quite a lot of time traveling through memory and experiences in mm-hmm. your books. And you said that the 1975 day that you use as a framing device in Rusty Brown is only a game board from which the individual chapters then veer far from, mm-hmm. uh, going backwards and forwards in time, sometimes several instances on a page. So there are computers and iPhones and social media alongside cruddy economy cars and plaid pants. Mm-hmm. How difficult was it for you to pair these things in determining what time was going to reference or contrast with another? It wasn't really that difficult. I mean, it's just a matter of, of, you know, first of all, trying to trust my own memory, and then second of all, just checking on the internet to make sure I had things right. But the copy editor for the book was amazing. She was really like, she asked me all these questions. Do you think somebody was really using Windows 95 still in whatever year it was? And wow, she's paying attention, you know. But um, a lot of that I can I can definitely attribute, at least that idea, to the great artist um, Richard McGuire who did a book called Here 
a number of years ago based on his um, six-page strip that appeared in Raw Magazine in 1990. And he sort of, he took the XY vectors of comics and added a Z axis to it. And he was the first cartoonist to suggest that you could overlap panels of time over the same point in space. And that strip, for lack of a more effective vernacular expression, truly blew my mind and really changed the way I thought both about comics and about the world itself. In what way? Just because I started looking at the world in a completely different way. I thought, like, I mean, everybody sort of thinks, like, oh, there probably used to be a different building here or this was here, but are you really thinking about the people who inhabited it? What was in this space 40 years ago? Just, like, if you demarcate out a small square of it, what was right here in this space? What was in this space 30 million years ago? What's going to be in it 10,000 years from now? And his book answers all those questions and does it in an extraordinary and extraordinarily beautiful way. Building Stories does that a little bit, too. Well, that's because of Richard McGuire. So he's, I mean, he really is a groundbreaking artist. So Rusty Brown is about several different characters, mm-hmm. and all are featured in the first part of the book in one snowy day at a school in Omaha, Nebraska in 1975. Mm-hmm. The characters include a third grader named Chalky White, his older sister Alice, the very perpetually bullied middle schooler Rusty Brown, his remote and abusive father, Woody Brown, who is a writer and also a teacher at the school, mm-hmm. teenage stoner named Jordan Lint, mm-hmm. another teacher named Franklin Christensen Ware, as we've mentioned, and Joanna Cole, a black teacher with a powerful secret. We don't learn until the very end. You methodically and unsentimentally detail their lives. You have some really challenging people to like in Rusty Brown. Really? Oh, okay. You do. Um, But it seems that you've made an active attempt not to judge them. And then in our earlier conversation, you went as far as to say you were looking to try to find something likable Mm -hmm. in everyone or anyone. Mm -hmm. How hard was that? Well, I mean, being the writer himself, uh, I don't know if it's a question of heart. It's just a matter of whether it makes sense or not. And the, I don't even know necessarily where all these people came from. They're obviously amalgams of people that I've known at various times, imaginary people that I haven't known. Um, I mean, I think that's what everybody should try to do. We should all try to see the good in everyone we meet because it's there somewhere sometimes it's buried very very deeply but i mean otherwise what's the point you know um nobody is a, is completely horrible there's some really truly horrible people who are you know 99.9 percent completely horrible but there's got to be some shred some in there of of some sensitivity and sympathy i think so it's very optimistic well yeah I mean, we're just like this weird thing inhabiting a planet. You know, I don't even know what our role is in the planet. Sometimes I think consciousness is just like this mistake or like an evolutionary kind of thing that we run just to keep the species alive. Or maybe we may be the only planet in the entire universe that has something called consciousness on it. It could just be an aberration or something. I think it's really overrated maybe even, but, you know, who knows? I think you have to try to see the overall patterns of everything all at once. I mean, that's kind of what one another one of the advantages of comics is certainly starting with the page itself to try to see a moment all at once from all sides and and, and beginnings and ends and try to pull that out as much as one can to comprehend it all at once the same way that we can do that in our minds. It's just difficult to describe. And then to also see that as a structure within a book and how those images and and spaces line up in the book and kind of create almost a sense of space 
within the book itself and then hopefully in the reader's mind. So there's that idea of grid cells that the Nobel um, winners, I think the, their surname is Mosher, who discovered that there are actually cells in our minds that, that map out spaces with which we're familiar, X, Y, Z little things like a halftone dots in 3D. And so it suggests that we actually have little tiny models of the houses that we've lived in and, and inhabit in our brains so that we're able to access them. And I, I like the way you use that little grid pattern in the book when uh, various characters are seeing things with either broken glasses or experiencing memories. Mm-hmm. That was a really beautiful way of reframing how we see something. Well, thank you. The stories in Rusty Brown are inspired by the structure of a snowflake. Mm-hmm. The six-sided shape of which is determined by the molecular structure of a water molecule. I learned a lot about snowflakes. Um, And which cannot form without a central piece of flotsam or grit, which I did not know. I didn't know that either until Sort of like a pearl and a, a, yeah. Right. I mean, it's incredible. What made you decide to concentrate on that structure or use that structure? Just because I found it so interesting and I really, really love snow. I moved back to the Midwest because I missed it so much in Texas. And it's it to me, it's just like the most perfect thing there is, like best art installation ever on planet Earth. You know, when you think about it, these billions of little tiny f- ice flowers falling down and kind of erasing the boundaries of everything and, and bringing this kind of silence and reassessment of the world. I don't know. I always just look forward to it and find it so astonishing. And the fact that then that they form in this way by traveling through the atmosphere through various slight variations in humidity and temperature, but that humidity and temperature affects the whole shape of the thing. So it's almost like a record of a life being lived in a way. So I wanted to try to use that as a, as a way of structuring the, the story. So Both real snow and television snow are recurring themes throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Why the correlation? It just kind of happened naturally as I was writing the book. I mean, I, I have sheafs of notes about what the book is going to be about, but the second I sit down at my table and start drawing, most of those ideas go out the window. And I realized that as I was working, I was these things kept coming up. So I watched a lot of television as a kid, way more than I ever should have. I had a TV in my room, and I would try to tune in channels from Sioux City, Iowa, which was very hard to tune in in Omaha, Nebraska. I would sometimes sit really close to the screen and start to see things in the interference pattern and snow of the of the screen, and I would actually kiss the television when there was a show that I knew I wouldn't either see for a while or perhaps never see again. So I, you know, this really pretty questionable behavior, but um, oh, I kissed Mister Rogers once. You did? I oh, did. that's nice. I loved well, he's... him so much. I kissed the television. I, I kissed Magnum PI. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, but it is true. <laughs> wow, I love that. I, bro- I have a good visual. And... <laughs> Before we talk, we talk specifically about the characters. I want to ask you why you titled the book Rusty Brown, mm-hmm. because he's only one of several characters and is certainly not the main character mm-hmm. of this first book. It's sort of like the Moby Dick of the book, where Moby Dick is not the main character of Moby Dick, but is the the central idea around which the rest of the book uh, orbits. Plus, it's a really embarrassing thing to say. Um, like Rusty Brown, I can't I find it painful to say and even hear. The name? Yes. 
Why? So I don't because it's embarrassing. It's not. It doesn't sound like the name of a serious book, but I seem to have this problem with almost everything I do. So, but it's the name of the character, the joke character that I came up with in the '90s, and it's just stuck. It's actually based on a, a character designed for a rust proofing company in Chicago, and there was a sticker on the rear window of a used car that I bought for this character named Rusty Jones. So I based the character on that. This and is just random. So Well, brown as in related to Charlie? Very good, actually. Yeah, there's a whole history of browns in comics, starting with Buster Brown and um, Jeffrey Brown, Chester Brown, Binky Brown, Charlie Brown, my friend Ivan Brunetti. That's the Italian version. So it's a weirdly common surname that sort of connects through the history of comics. And it also obviously has a connection to color, and skin color, and I think it's fair to say that race and racism is a theme of the book, and I wanted that Very to be apparent so. in the title as well. So, Rusty Brown is the bullied and badly treated eight-year-old schoolboy. He occupies our attention for the first 100 pages of the book, and then the baton is passed to Rusty's dad, who is first portrayed as a middle-aged teacher and then as a younger man desperate for love from one woman and success as a science fiction writer. The focus then moves to Jordan, or Jason, Lint. Mm -hmm. This is is a slight name change. Uh, He's a school bully, but so much more. And then the life and quest of an African-American woman named Joanna Cole. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to talk about them all. Okay. Rusty Brown is obsessed with comic heroes, such as Supergirl, mm-hmm. who he's sure would melt away the snow with her heat vision and wonders whether in the quiet after a snowfall he might have developed super hearing. What made you decide to give Rusty a Supergirl doll versus a G.I. Joe or other popular, more conventional boy dolls of the time? Because uh, I had one myself, uh, as well as other uh, super uh, heroine dolls or something, and I really felt affection for them. And I even made a little cardboard dollhouse for them, and and had it in the in my room, and and made like this is where you know Batgirl lives, you know, and was more interested in her life actually, sans the Batgirl persona, and more like what book is she reading or what TV show is she watching, so. This never actually happened to me, but it would, needless to say, have been really mortifying had I accidentally brought her to school with me, because certainly in the 1970s, it would have been rather emasculating to bring a, basically a Barbie doll to school with you. So, But that's what he accidentally does. He puts her in his pocket because he feels such affection for her, then accidentally brings her to school and then hides her in his desk. So it's the way then that he connects with this new kid in the class. Chalky White, who also is interested in the same stuff he is. So, Jimmy Corrigan's story includes a flawed superhero figure, and I was wondering if this was coincidence or intentional. Um, well, I mean, I grew up reading superhero comics, you know, and I, I was more interested, again, in, like, you know, the Batcave as a place or something or a place where I could kind of go that seemed safe and fun or something, so... And I think Joanna's friend Amy is a character from Jimmy Corrigan. That's right. And yeah. I loved that. Oh, well, thanks little thanks for noticing. Little detail. Oh, well, that's very, very perspicacious of you. <laughs> what a good word. <laughs> perspicacious. Well, then again, I mean, superheroes in their male form, definitely, there's no question that they're father stand-ins. And I never knew my real dad growing up. And a lot of boys in World War 
too didn't know their parents, which I think is one of the or their dads, one of the reasons why comics were so popular then, because it was sort of a, a fictional stand-in for the father that was away at war or somehow involved in this. And then a little bit later on, just as a stand-in for just a distant father, because the idea of American masculinity is to be distant um, and domineering, if not necessarily abusive or horrible or something. So um, fortunately, we had, as you pointed out earlier, role models like Fred Rogers, who directly and very self-consciously and actively tried to work against that. Rusty's dad, Woody, is a teacher and a science fiction writer who makes a fairly rash decision about who to marry after a really heartbreaking breakup. His marriage is essentially a rebound. When you're writing these, do you think about who a person would be if they hadn't made these bad decisions? Like, I kept wondering, would Woody be the sort of awful man that he is, Mm -hmm. especially to his son, If he'd had more love, if he'd been better treated, or do you write from the perspective of this is the character with these specific life decisions? You know, in a lot of ways, it's really neither. It's just what happens as I'm working. And I certainly think about those things and think about, like, what was Woody Brown's family like? And I kind of do a little bit about that as well. So it's a it's a certainly a part of the character, but it's I don't map it all out ahead of time. So um. I mean, I definitely wondered if he would have been a better person mm-hmm. as well. You know, is it about a lack of love or heartbreak that turns you one way or another, or is it something that you have to decide? I think for everyone it's different. I, I, and again, I, I, a lot of the stories of life and people that I have internalized have come from my wife, who's, again, a public school teacher. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason to any of it because she can have students who are in the absolute worst of home circumstances if they even have a home, but they can be some of her best students and vice versa. Like a loving home doesn't necessarily mean a successful person and an uncomfortable home doesn't necessarily mean a terrible person. Many of the male characters are not faithful to their wives and lust over other women after getting married and having families. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's a lot more sex in Rusty Brown than in (laughs) building stories. And I saw a lot more penises. Sorry, I guess Mm. it's more of a male book. There's a lot of sex in building stories, though. Yeah, I think there's more. Oh, really? Maybe just because it's bigger, but I don't know. But... (laughs) I, I just felt like there was a lot of a lot more penis in this book than I remember. Um, Chip, I'm well, that was my role as the editor. Uh, that was my that was my one note. Uh, more more penis, please. Um, well, it's two of the characters are male. I mean, certainly in the character of Jordan Lent, that's his way of seeing himself as a successful male. Yes, yes. which is part of that idea of maleness that uh, informs, unfortunately, so many people, and apparently including our president. So Yeah, you've stated that you hope that when Trump's tenure is over, he'll have served as the last grasp of this penis-centric mode of conquest, which has characterized not only the country for almost 400 years, but for millennia. Did I say that? Yes, you did. Oh, wow, okay. Um, how hard or not is it for you to draw sex scenes? Well, no, it's not necessarily that hard. It depends on how embarrassing it is or how personal it might be or how much it might be revealing of my own whatever. So, um, but Do you worry you know, about that? Do you worry sure, that people yeah. might see you differently if they think that your autobiography is somehow embedded in something? 
you know, there's no way to predict how people are going to see a story that one is writing and how much of it is biographical or not. In fact, it seems like the whole idea of of fiction being a way of exploring the possibilities of other people, just because you write a terrible character doesn't mean you are or want to be a terrible character. And that seems to be a little befuddled maybe at the moment. Jordan Lint is another big character in Rescue Brown. He's introduced as a bully mm-hmm. first. You, we meet him as a bully. But you give him a backstory that allows us to understand how his behavior is shaped by his own really traumatic experiences early in life. He witnesses domestic violence. He experiences abandonment of his father. Really heartbreaking. And I actually felt a lot more empathy with him than I did with Woody. Mm -hmm. And I sort of felt like I should have felt more empathy towards Woody, but I felt that he was worse than Jordan somehow. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it's just because of my own projection of my own experiences and felt like if if I could better understand Jordan, I could better understand myself. But yet, towards the end of Jordan's section, his second wife declares that he is really a fucking bastard. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering how you feel about Jordan. Yeah, well, he's uh, not a very nice person, that's for sure. I mean, there's a section in there where his son writes a memoir that includes a scene of abuse. And it's written, it's a textbook, and but the story itself is told in images as if the reader was inhabiting um, Jordan's mind as he's reading it. And, and his response in that is to then sue his own son for defamation of character, which I thought when I was writing, I thought, man, it might be a little bit. That seems to happen, you know, more than one might really even imagine would be possible. You know, the, in the amount of alienation and uh, estrangement between parents and children is really very surprising, actually. So originally, I'd actually kind of hoped that he would be a good person at the end, and it sadly didn't quite work out that way. So he has moments of being good, and at a certain point of, of sympathizing and empathizing, of trying to be like a good parent to his his second wife's child, but it doesn't catch, you know, and I don't know. I really do believe people can change that. We have to believe that. If we don't believe that, then what's the point? You know, and that's that's part of the, one of the real issues that I think we're bumping up against now. Like, we believe that when people get out of prison, we have to give them a second chance. But then at the same time, some people's careers are can be ruined as well. Shouldn't they? Everybody should have some kind of second chance. But it's, there's... I don't know how one decides these things or how they can be decided. You I know? think that's so. the word, decision. I yeah. remember my my aunt saying after my dad died that his life was the result of a lot of bad decisions. Hmm. Yeah. Everybody's life is a result of bad decisions. So, yeah. And, and that was Jordan. Jordan just made bad decision after bad decision. Um, the first 16 pages of Jordan's story were originally published in the anthology The Book of Other People, edited by Zadie Smith, and each spread in the book represents one year in Jordan's life. And it took me a little while to figure that out. I didn't get that at first. The first moments of his consciousness are depicted with simple geometric shapes. Then communication is presented as sequences of empty boxes. You are the king of the empty box, by the way. (laughs) Um, Showcasing that Jordan recognizes sounds are occurring, but he doesn't have the vocabulary to interpret it. Um, And then as Jordan's awareness expands, your visual storytelling becomes more complex. We watch Jordan age and experience humiliation and disappointment and anxiety. And his chapter really does pose those questions about the hardening of character, 
about how we limit our own chances of happiness and fulfillment and how every decision matters. Mm-hmm. Every decision matters about our own path. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. I, well, I mean, he's obviously the most privileged character in the book. Uh, he inherits his father's business. Um, so he has the ability quite readily to be a bully and to be mean and to be bad. But um, he was so bullied. By his dad. Yeah, I think that's true. But, you know, who, who, I, you know I, maybe I shouldn't talk about this, but it seems like, you know, you think about our president. It seems like what kind of dad must he have had? Oh, yeah. And why does he act the way he does? Because he is a bully. He is the bully in chief. He's really, that's how he gets things done. He lies and he pushes around and shoves and that's how he understands the world. And he can do that because he grew up in a circumstance that allowed him to do that. He didn't have to try to understand people or or shrink back and and take second seat or something. So um, I I tried, I just was trying to imagine the kind of people or what, what would put somebody in that circumstance. And it's really in some ways it's difficult because you have to acknowledge those things and then think, why, how can I be a better person? So let's talk about Joanna Cole. Mm-hmm. She's my favorite character in Rusty Brown. You show us a black woman's experience in the same environments and experiences we previously saw through mm-hmm. a white male perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you show heartbreaking, unjust, racism, misogyny, as you recount her struggles to become a person, a respected person and a teacher. You show her being spat on Mm -hmm. when she walks through a college campus or how she's told her students won't touch the cupcake she's made Mm -hmm. for them Mm -hmm. because she's black. Mm -hmm. She's the most senior, hardest working teacher, but she makes less money than her white male co-workers, which Mm -hmm. you show us with pay stubs. How hard was this for you as a white man to do? Extraordinarily so. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm already completely shrouded in self-doubt, and this was like, you know, being encased in it or something. But I had to do it. I mean, she was a character in the story, and it's indefensible in a way for me to have even attempted this because it's not my experience. I can try to understand it and imagine it, I'm a part of that experience. I've caused that experience. I'm on the outside of it, and I have to understand it as a person. And this is my attempt, the best I could possibly try to understand it without in any way sentimentalizing it or hopefully getting it wrong. I'm sure I got plenty of things wrong, but that's my responsibility as a writer. The main character of the book is the book really itself and how the six people are affect and interact each other but I, I she's probably the best the the most good character in the book well av club stated that joanna is the only adult lead who can be considered a decent compassionate person mm-hmm. making her humiliations and rejections all the more dispiriting mm-hmm. what made you decide to make her such a noble character i didn't even know if i decided it i just sort of knew that she was which is why I ended this, you know, the first part of the book with her. Do you have um, a sense of where she's going to go next? Yeah. Oh, you sure. do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, she's sort of the antidote to the rest of the book in a lot of ways. So You've said that staying the same while changing mm-hmm. is no different from the way in which we all live. 
trying to fix what we consider important moments in our minds, yet inevitably changing and rewriting them, while making plans which always change or fall apart in the face of unpredictable fortune and tragedy. Mm-hmm. But I sense, Chris, that you stay hopeful. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, but you have to be realistic, too. But yeah, I know I'm a very hopeful person, um, which it kind of makes me sad sometimes when I'll hear that maybe somebody read my books and just felt that I was just simply trying to make bum them out or make them sad or something. That's not the goal at all. I'm just trying to capture that real feeling of life passing that we used to feel more when we were younger. Like, I really remember feeling life as a thing in my chest when I was maybe 12 to 16 or something like that. And I think at a certain point, we kind of figure out how to tamp that down or something. And I'm just simply trying to get at that feeling because that feeling ultimately is that sensation that can open you up to other people and put you in a, in a position of understanding them and feeling through them and for them. That I mean, what else? what's the point otherwise, really? Yeah, I actually don't feel that I come away from your book's bummed out. I actually feel like I come away from your books understood. Well, that's very kind of you. I really appreciate it. Um, So I have a question, last question for you both. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to be taking the book next as editor and as creator? This is is one of two. So we're at the halfway point. We're in the intermission. Well, okay. (laughs) So now as the editor, now I'm getting internally when do we get the next one? Right. And uh, Please tell me we're not going to have to wait two decades. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. I'm working on two other books at the same time, which I've got a whole lot more done on. So, And, and I worked on Rusty Brown while I did Building Stories. I thought it would be done before Building Stories, and then it just ended up not being. So, yeah, sorry. But I, I do want it to cover a certain amount of a good part of my life as a person, too, to try to capture that feeling of time's passage and to be something that I work on for a while. I mean, you know, there aren't that many things that we work on for a while other than maybe our children and our own lives. So I want that to sort this just kind of be slight companion to that. So I think we're looking 20 years, Chip. Yeah. <laughs> well, something to wait for. I mean, my, my, my daughter Clara is now um, 14 and she's a, a, basically an independent person. So now I have all this time now to work the way I used to in my 20s. So, um, Well, just two things. First of all, I'm so looking forward to the Aquaman graphic novel that you're working on, which was in secret, but now no longer. Uh, it's going to be awesome. When, is, when will it be out? Uh, 2089. <laughs> um, but, and, but speaking of Clara, who is also my goddaughter. And she is. Just the most spectacular kid because she has the most spectacular parents. Um, we had nothing to do with it. But I remember, though, uh, you were very adamant about her not being able to read your work. Mm-hmm. And that's changed now, correct? Or no? Well, I mean, she could do whatever she wants at this point, And she's a, a, a incredibly smart and, uh, and independent person. And if she wants to read it, she can. And, you know, but at this point, probably luckily, she probably doesn't want to. So it's, it's entirely up to her, I, you know, so... Chris Ware, Chip Kidd, thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters and having this conversation with me about this remarkable new book. Well, don't thank me. Thank you. Your questions are really, truly amazing. So thank you so much. Yeah, they're better than mine when we have to go on the road. (laughs) I'm trying to learn. I'll give you my notes. Please do. I'm trying to learn. (laughs) 
You can find out more about Chip Kid on his website, chipkid.com, and more about Chris Ware at pantheon.com. Also, Rusty Brown has his own Wikipedia page. Chris's new book, Rusty Brown, is available wherever books are sold. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.